0: John 4, verses 16 to 26. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you say truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming And now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He.
1: Let's pray together. I'm so aware, Father, that words, words, so many words are heard day in and day out. What can make a word life changing? Your Spirit, Lord, and that alone. We confess our utter dependence on you and our deep desire that you would take imperfect words and use them for a perfect work of redemption in the lives of these people and for the establishment of faith and the kindling of true worship. In Jesus' name, amen. If people are spiritually Asleep, you have to shock them, you have to startle them. Sometimes you have to scandalize them in order to get them to hear what you have to say. Jesus was especially good at this, and so when he wanted to teach us something about worship, he used a whore to do it. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. That's right, but you've had five And the man you're sleeping with now, he's not your husband. Well, of course, she was shocked. We're shocked. But Jesus simply sits there on the edge of the well with his hands folded, looking into her eyes. The first thing this teaches us about worship is that worship has to do with real life. Has to do with adultery. Has to do with hunger, racial conflict. It's not a mythical interlude in the week of reality. Picture Jesus. He's here. He's hot. He's sweaty. He's thirsty. And he decides, yes, even now, now, I will go ahead and I will seek someone to worship God, a harlot, a Samaritan adulteress. I'm going to show my disciples how God is seeking people in the midst of real life to worship Him. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's a harlot. She'll do just fine to illustrate the Father's mission to seek those who worship Him. I want you to see how He does it. So back up with me to John chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Jesus had to pass through Samaria on His way to Galilee, so He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus... Wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about noon. Now, before we meet this woman, I want you to know a little bit about the Samaritans. They were the remnant of the people of Israel left in the land of Samaria when the northern kingdom was taken into exile in 729 B.C. by Assyria. They intermarried with those who were left there and those that the Assyrians sent in. They built their own alternative place of worship in Mount Gerizim, and they accepted none of the Old Testament except their version of the first five books of Moses. So their knowledge of God was deficient, and their hostility towards Jews was deep and old. Jesus walks right into this hostility, sits down on one of their cherished wells, and asks for a drink. The woman is amazed that Jesus would even speak to her and says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? But instead of answering her, Jesus lifts the level of her amazement to a new place. He says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says the really amazing thing is not that I'm talking to you as Samaritan, but that you're not asking me for living water. That's the amazing thing in this interchange. He calls it living water. He calls it the gift of God. But this woman does not rise very high in response to Jesus' words. She's more like the uh, three guys that sat behind me and Karsten and Benjamin at the uh, Twins game on Thursday who kept saying, I'm so full of beer, I'm so full of beer. (laughs) And then arguing incessantly with each other like five-year-olds about whether Eisenreich should have tagged up on third base. Dead, enslaved to the flesh. If I'd have turned around to them and said... You can have living water that will take away your thirst forever. You can put away that big bucket you're drinking out of. They would have just looked at me like I was from another planet. And so this woman looked at Jesus that way. She simply says, verse 11, how can you give me water when you don't have a bucket? If you want me to drink from another well, then you must think you're better than Jacob. Well, if this well was good enough for Jacob, it's good enough for me. No thanks. So she's not on Jesus' wavelength at all yet. So Jesus lifts her to a new level of amazement. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The amazing thing, ma'am, is not that I can give you water without a bucket, but that I can give you water that will make you never thirst again. And better than that, when you drink this water, you cease to be just a receiver, you overflow and become a fountain that gives life to other people. Now, what did Jesus mean? Let's pause here and ask what he was saying when he promised this living water. Proverbs 13, 14 says, "...the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life." So maybe Jesus meant that when you have his teaching, and you can share it with others, you are a fountain of life. His word is a fountain that gives life to people. But the closest analogy in John to this text, the closest parallel is John 7:37 where you remember Jesus stood up and he proclaimed if anyone thirst let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water now this he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were to receive so just like in John 4:14, 4, there's a drinking in of water and a flowing out of water. But here it makes it very clear that the water is the Holy Spirit. But I think the two are probably to be kept together these two answers, the word of Jesus and the spirit of God. Jesus keeps them together. He says The Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So the function of the Spirit when we drink Him in, given by the Lord Jesus, is to clarify and make precious the Word of God. So the Word and the Spirit together bring life to the soul and turn us into fountains of life for other people. So the Word of promise and the power of the Spirit are the living water offered to the Samaritan harlot. Now, I hope that that encourages you as much as it does me. Here's the way it has encouraged me before and again last night. Sometimes I feel so dead and so sinful that I seriously ask whether I can be of any use to anybody let alone the church. And up till now in my life, the Lord has always been gracious to me to bring me a text like this and remind me of a fact that is utterly indispensable in the ministry and I think in your life too. Namely, here is a woman who is worldly, sensually minded, unspiritual, a harlot of Samaria. And Jesus is saying that she cannot only be saved. That would be great enough. But she can become a fountain of life. There's hope, therefore, for anybody who'll turn away from their sin and start drinking at the right fountain or the right well, namely the words of Jesus. And I am reminded then that if I can just begin to drink, and what thirsty soul can't drink, begin to drink at the right well, maybe I can still be of use to this congregation. And you too. I think that's what Jesus wanted this woman to see. But harlots and beer-bellied baseball fans have hardened their spiritual senses so deeply They can't taste what Jesus means. You can pour it into their mouth, but they can't taste it. It's just blah after all that sex and all that beer. It has no taste anymore. So she says, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. And misses the point entirely. But here's a lesson for us. Beware on giving up on people too quickly. Jesus has set his sight on this woman's conversion. He wants her for God. She can't see beyond her physical senses. So Jesus touches her now at the most sensitive, vulnerable point in her life. Go call your husband. The quickest way to a person's heart is through a wound. Why does Jesus strip this woman bare? He hardly even knows her. What right, we would say, if we were there probably, to probe and lay bare this woman's heart after a two-minute interchange? Because in John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus had said, Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Concealed sin blinds us to the beauty of Jesus. If you are concealing sin in your life and the glory of Christ is presented to you he will look like a stick figure. Sin is like spiritual leprosy. It deadens the senses of the heart so that you can mangle your heart without even knowing it, like a leper can mangle his hands and not realize it. But Christ has set His sight on this woman's conversion And so he lays bare her spiritual leprosy. You've had five husbands, and the man you're sleeping with right now is not your husband. Now watch her and learn a universal reflex of a person trying to avoid conviction. She has to admit in verse 19 that he has extraordinary insight. You're a prophet. You must be a prophet. But then, she tries to suck Jesus into an academic controversy. Oh, so you're a prophet? Well, where do you stand on the issue of where people ought to worship? Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say, "In Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. A trapped animal will chew his leg off. A trapped sinner will mangle her own brain and ruin and rip to shred the laws of logic and discourse. Why, yes, as long as we're on the subject of how many husbands I've had and my adultery, what's your opinion about where people ought to worship? That kind of irrational, maneuvering, an evasive use of words and double talk is amazingly common in the church and in the world. And texts like these incline me to think that wherever I find that, something is being hidden. If your conscience is clean, Reason will hold sway in your life. And if your conscience is not, you will be sucked instinctively into irrationality. It's interesting, though, how gracious Jesus is here. He never goes back to the issue of adultery. All he needed it for was a big ram through the door of her heart. And once his foot is in, he never mentions it again. He simply takes what she offered and uses it to move on to redemption. She had said, well, there's an issue I want you to talk about here. Where should we worship? And Jesus responds by saying, ma'am, that controversy cannot compare in importance to the controversy of how to worship and whom to worship. So he, he takes where she is and moves her along a little step farther. How and whom are vastly more important than where. Verse 21 takes her attention away from the where to the how. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, It's not the location that makes worship authentic. It's how you do it, where it comes from inside, not where you do it outside. Worship is not merely an external act that you accomplish by going to a place. Remember Jesus said in Matthew, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Worship is first and foremost an event or an experience of the heart. Prayer without heart is vain. Songs without heart are vain. Confessions, creeds, liturgies, sermons that don't have any heart are empty and vain and useless in God's sight. So Jesus says to the woman, don't get all hung up with irrelevant controversies. How you worship is the issue, not where. And in verse 22, he introduces a second thing, namely, whom is so important. You worship what you do not know, you you Samaritans. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now here's what I think he's doing. When all of our efforts to be gentle and sensitive and respectful of another person's religion are done, there comes a time when you just have to say your worship is wrong. The biblical worship is right. And you know as well as I do that as soon as you say that, 90% of the time they're going to throw it back in your face and call you what? Arrogant. Are you arrogant when you say that? No. Not necessarily, at least. If there is truth, that's the big issue. Is there truth that makes some things false and some things true? If there is truth and you and I have bowed humbly before the truth like little children trying to bring our wills into submission to the truth, And we look and we see people in rebellion against the truth, and we try to persuade them with arguments to bow with us before the same truth that is not arrogant. Doesn't matter what they say, it isn't. It is love. Jesus says, You Samaritans rejected the Old Testament almost entirely. And therefore, your knowledge of God is deficient and your worship is deficient. And therefore, you need to change and adopt new beliefs. And I've come to share them with you. And to tell those Samaritans that was no more unloving than to tell a man with lung cancer to stop smoking. He may think, who are you to tell me to stop smoking? And you can say to him with all honesty, I love you. That's why I'm talking to you So verses 21 and 22, Jesus directs the woman's attention away from external questions about where to the internal question of how and the theological question of whom. Worship has to be a vital experience from within and worship has to be based on a true perception of God. And now look at verse 23 and this very familiar phrase that really has motivated me and I want to understand so much namely spirit and truth. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And I think those two words correspond to the how question of worship and the who question of worship in verses 21 and 22. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of merely external ways of worshiping. It's the opposite of formalism and traditionalism. Worshiping in truth is the opposite of worship that's based on false ideas about God. And you put the two together, and what you see is that real worship comes from our spirit. It's not just an external act. It comes from our spirit, and it's based on true views of God. To use language that we use today more common. True worship has to have head and heart. Worship must engage your emotions and must engage your thought. Truth without emotion results in a dead orthodoxy and a church full of fighters. Even fighters for love. Fighters for truth. Fighters for this. Emotion without truth produces empty frenzy, and cultivates flaky people who reject the discipline of rigorous thought. True discipline comes from deeply emotional people who love deep and true doctrine. And We're going to keep the two together at Bethlehem. We're going to be like Jonathan Edwards who wrote I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of the truth with which they are affected. Let me use an analogy to sum up what I think worship is. The fuel of worship is truth, the truth about a gracious and sovereign God. Think of it as coal or wood. The furnace of worship is your spirit, not a building or any location. It's your spirit. The heat of worship are the affections that are born in you, like reverence, fear, adoration, contrition, trust, joy, gratitude, hope. But what's missing from that analogy? Fire. What's the fire? The Holy Spirit is the fire that lights the fuel, warms the furnace. Look at verse 23 again. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, many interpreters take that word spirit to mean the Holy Spirit. And I've taken it to mean my spirit and your spirit. That is, worship should come from within and be felt, not just be an expression of external acts. But let me show you how I think maybe John is bringing the two together. Go back with me to chapter 3, verse 6. A very familiar verse. Here, Jesus says, that which is born of the Spirit is... Spirit, big-ass spirit, little-ass spirit. Now, what does that mean? It seems to me that it means something like this. Until the Holy Spirit, with His life-giving fire, touches your spirit, your spirit is so dead it doesn't even qualify as spirit. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And until your spirit is born of the spirit, it ain't spirit. It's dead. It's nothing. It's a shell. So when Jesus says true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, I think he means true worship comes from our spirit when it's been touched and made new and enlivened by God's spirit. Now we can complete the analogy. The fuel of worship is the grand truth of a gracious and sovereign God tossed into the furnace of our spirit as we read the Scriptures or hear a sermon or meditate on a hymn and inflamed and set fire to by the Holy Spirit out of which comes the heat of our affections which are worship, pushing themselves out in tears, Confessions, prayers, praises, acclamations, lifting of hands, bowing of ourselves low and obedient lives. Now, let me close with one more observation. Notice in verse 23 something that I haven't read yet. For such the Father seeks to worship Him. God's aim, God's goal in history is to seek Worshippers like this drop down and look at verse 34 now. When the disciples come back from Sychar carrying their food, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What's the work of God according to verse 23? To seek worshipers. So Jesus is saying, God's work is to seek worshippers. My job is to finish God's work. Therefore, I have been eating my food, which is to do God's work, while you've been gone, namely, to find a harlot and make her into a worshipper. And I think the text means that we should go back to the beginning of John 4 and read the whole interchange as God in Christ seeking to find a woman to make her into a worshiper of God. That's why God the Father sent Jesus into the world. That's why He sends you into the world because the white harvest of harlots in Sychar is very great. Here comes the whole city of Sychar. Men, the field is white unto harvest. If you love the glory of God, make ready to reap. Let's pray. Ignite, O Holy Spirit, please, this faltering word, so that it inflames by Your fire in the furnace of our spirits, so that we might join You and our Father in heaven, and His Son in seeking people to worship You. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of Thy name. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen.